Have you seen his book? Uh, this book has no pictures. I think it's, it's titled something like that. He, he's a star of The Office, right? Everybody know The Office? The producer of it? Okay. And he wrote a book called The Book with No Pictures. And it is fantastic. And it will grip any three-year-old for 100% certain. So if you get a chance to take a look at that. But I'm a picture guy. And I always like to disabuse people of their fantastical images of the ark. Uh, the ark was just a box, a rectangular box. It's really all it was. So anytime you see a picture of this ornate, you know, beautifully sculpted, uh, contoured lumber, nope, no way. Uh, Noah didn't have the capacity or the means to do that. It was a box that floated on the water um, and didn't sink more because of angelic intervention <laughs> than because of the <laughs> quality of its construction. And that, so this is about the best I can do here. Looks like a big rectangle. I don't even know if he was, you know, building that arch roof there. Or those windows. I don't even know about that. And, like, what's lighting the windows, right? Do you think he was dumb enough to put fire lanterns in this thing? <laughs> I mean, I guess he could have bet on the water being there to, you know, put the thing out if it needed. But I don't know. Anyway, this is, uh, this is my anecdote as the uh, second, not first, second illustration of baptism in the Bible, where eight people in all are literally saved through water, through the washing of water, and they're saved through it. So we'll come to that a little bit later on, but before we get into the weeds, let's ask the Holy Spirit to come and preside. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father in heaven, we offer up this evening... Um, especially the next oh, hour or so of our discussion together, and ask that you would grant us clarity in our thoughts, grant me clarity in my words, help us to have a meeting of hearts and minds so that the important points and none of the unimportant ones will come across well and that you will be glorified because of the time that we've spent here together thinking about this stuff. Uh, please change us, mold us, have your way over us and, and help us to become the people you want us to be, your children in this place, this church. We ask all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Might be well, I thought, to gather up some of the, the mains, the main points from last week. And I'm going to get a black eye here from Blake later um, because I'll probably skip over something he thought was really important, and I don't say it here. Um, but we talked about grace and the sacraments last week. Some of you were here. Some of you weren't here. So I hope this will be helpful. Sort of in summary fashion, let's grab a basic definition of grace. And I just pulled three sections from the catechism. So starting up there, and any so anytime you see CCC, that's the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and that funky-looking double S, or whatever you'd think to call that, that's, that's a section marker. And so all the catechism paragraphs are numbered in sections. And so this is paragraph or section 1996. It's not the year. Grace, as it starts out, is favor, the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call, to become children of God, his children, adoptive sons and daughters, we could say, partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. And I, those italics in the first line there aren't mine. They're in the catechism. And I'd like to draw attention to them because the catechism wants us to. Here's a place where a helpful set of words is, is given to us to differentiate between what Catholics are actually taught, what the church actually teaches about the Catholic faith, and, on the other hand, what a lot of non-Catholics think the Catholic church teaches. So, I'm a convert. Many of you are not Catholic yet, or you're on your way in, or whatever. Maybe you're not ready. One of the things that some of you will recognize is this understanding on the part of many non-Catholic Christian traditions that... The Catholic Church, it's a mistaken understanding, but go with me here, that the Catholic Church thinks you got to earn your way into heaven or earn your way into God's favor. you got to, oh, you Catholics, you're so obsessed with works 
You got to be baptized. You make a big deal about that. You got to go again and again to receive the Eucharist, you know, like working your way. You got to go to confession. You, you got to do these works of mercy or charity, right? All these works, works, works. And Protestants or non-Catholics look at that and say, you guys are obsessed with earning your way through your works into God's grace or God's favor. No, the Catholic Church teaches very plainly that grace is something, it's a gift that God gives, and it's nothing, nothing we do can deserve it. It's a gift. It's unmerited. We've used that word, we used it last week. I'm not sure if we ever defined it. Merit, that sense of uh, being in a position where we deserve or are owed something. We have merit, you know, like a merit badge. Uh, there's nothing we can do to merit God's initial gift of grace. Merit comes later, but it's also something that God does in us. So God never doesn't get the credit. It's always his credit. It's undeserved. So let's just lock that in. 1997, grace, um, more specifically, is a participation in the life of God. It introduces us into the intimacy, I love that word, the closeness of Trinitarian life. Wonder what the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all about, what they're talking about, what the nature of their relationship is. Baptism gets us into that. We get to participate in that. It's entry. It's you get to be in the club. <laughs> By baptism, the Christian participates in the grace of Christ, the head of his body. As an adopted son or daughter, again, we could say, a Christian can henceforth call God Father in union with the only Son. If we're in union with God's Son, Jesus, then we, we're siblings, so to speak, then his Father is our Father, and we get to use the same language. He calls God Father, therefore we get to call God Father. And that's good news for those of us who didn't have very good fathers. He receives this person who is baptized, he receives the life of the Spirit who breathes charity into him and who forms the church. So something miraculous happens with grace. Finally, the vocation to eternal life is supernatural. This is sort of restating in different ways the first point above in 1996. It depends entirely on God's gratuitous initiative. Take initiative, young people are told. Be a leader. You know, step forward. That's what God does. God takes the initiative. He starts the conversation. He gives us the grace initially, and we can respond or not. He alone can reveal and give himself. And this gift that he gives surpasses the power of human intellect and will as that of every other creature. You can't say it any more plainly than that. The non-Catholic misunderstanding that Catholics are all about earning, like pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps, you know, and, and, and working their way to heaven. No. What we need surpasses the power of our own ability to provide it for ourselves or to come up with it. It's something that's given. So I made that point. Lots of different ways we can move on. Any questions? <laughs> you don't want to debate me? I'm just kidding. Category, the different kinds of grace, and I won't go through all of them, but the two main ones, sanctifying and actual. So let's start with sanctifying grace. This came up last week, of course, and I want to make sure that we're clear before we move into baptism. Sanctifying grace is a grace that heals our soul, and it restores us to God and his divine life in us. I just want to camp on that line before I even read the bits from the catechism. So... Um, our sin wounds our soul, it injures it, and it breaks the relationship that we have with God and with the church. Sanctifying grace is that gift that we can't earn. We, need just, we just need to go forward and receive it. Uh, that heals the wound and that brings us back, that mends the relationship but, but that we used to have with God. It restores us to God. And it's also the case that, um, and we'll get into this a little bit more in the, in the discussion to follow, but what grace is, is a share in God's life. It's God putting his own life into us. When we sin gravely, we damage that, or we kill it off. We start, it starts to die. We reject it, in a sense. And that grace that's in us from God, God's life in us, 
It's not that he leaves or pulls it out. It's that we push it out. And we need it to be back. We need it back. And so what sanctifying grace does is it brings that divine life back into us where we've pushed it out. Uh, so here's 1999, sort of just carrying on from and the progression of the catechism's statements on it. The grace of Christ, talking about sanctifying grace, is the gratuitous gift that God makes to us of his own life, infused by the Holy Spirit into our soul to heal it of sin and to sanctify it, to make it holy again. It's the sanctifying or deifying grace received in baptism. That's a big word, deifying grace, uh, meaning that something divine has entered into us, and we are now sharing that somehow. It doesn't make us gods uh, in in the normal sense of that word, but we are somehow participating in the divine life. And as such, then, it's divining us. <laughs> it's, it's remaking us. It is in us the source of the work of sanctification. And then the last one from 2000, uh, section 2000, top page two. Sanctifying grace is an habitual gift, a habit-forming gift, uh, something that keeps on giving, a stable and supernatural disposition that perfects the soul itself to enable it to live with God. So the sanctifying grace is something that's like, like the Energizer Buddy. It just keeps on going and going and going, right, in us, provided that we don't push it out and reject it. It keeps on uh, giving to us to act by God's love. To say habitual grace is to say the permanent disposition to live and act in keeping with God's call. That's distinguished from actual graces. So to actual graces we turn in letter B. So here's the other category. Actual grace is the grace, also a gift, that endows us, it equips us with the capacity to act. So let me give a couple of examples. Um, I had a great talk with my colleague Josh today, a New Testament specialist guy. Had lots of good things to fill my heart and my mind with on baptism this morning as we were sharing our first coffee in the office together. It's great. I love working with that guy. His mind just goes. Um, and we were talking about what's, what's not an example of an actual grace. Um, well, if we start with a basic definition, that sanctifying grace is, has to do with our soul, has to do with healing the life of God, restoring the life of God inside of us, to us, restoring us to God. Actual grace is grace to act. So um, getting up, this is my first example, getting up the gumption to recognize that I've sinned that I need to be forgiven and to get in the car and drive to St. Peter and knock on Father Worth's door and say, will you please hear my confession? That's actual grace that God gives me to do that when I kind of don't want to. Like, I'm embarrassed or I, you know, I've got other things I could do. Actual grace is that gift that God gives me that turns my motivation toward sanctifying grace. <laughs> toward the reception of sanctifying grace. Actual grace is not uh, the gift of God that prevents that Yahoo shooting across Old Cheney and nearly causing an accident that prevents that from affecting my trip to confession. That's a different kind of gift, a different kind of grace. We might call it a grace, but it's not an actual grace. In other words, um, we can look at the, prog- the, the, the process of me getting from recognizing my sin to the confessional as a journey. And on the journey, um, I might be, God might intervene through his, an- his angels or, or uh, other means to, uh, or the saints, you know, the saints' prayers, to make sure I get there safely so that I can actually receive sanctifying grace, right? But none of those preventative measures we would call an actual grace. Actual grace has to do with what's going on in me that disposes me or helps me to be disposed to go and receive sanctifying grace. Does that make sense? Actual grace is not helping me do well on the test. Or um, it might be, though, um, when we pray and ask God, I'm in a difficult or I'm going to have a difficult conversation with a friend and I need help. God, please endow me. That, that might be a, a case where we have where we're given actual grace to respond well, to uh, 
to think well, to feel well about the person across from us where it could have been a difficult conversation. There are seven, seven sacraments. We're getting into the first one tonight, baptism. They're variously defined in different ways. Uh, uh, I looked all over the catechism and couldn't find it before I realized it was St. Augustine that was the one that said the sacrament is an outward sign of inward grace. So I spent like 15 minutes like, I know that this is in here. <laughs> nope. I have always been a little dissatisfied. I mean, not that I should disagree with Augustine. He's, you know, this giant of the faith. But I just have never felt like that encapsulates the beauty and significance of, of sacraments. I've, I like the word conduit, although I know a lot of us maybe don't know what that word means. Uh, so if you think of a sacrament as a conduit of sanctifying grace, and now I explain it, okay? What's a conduit? Like the tubing that holds the wire through which electricity flows. All right? It's this, it's this transport system. That's <laughs> what a conduit is. That is, it's the means by which the gift of sanctifying grace gets from God in heaven into here on earth. All right? It's, it's, the, it's the means. Means is probably better than conduit. And each sacrament comprises two main components. There's the matter, that is the what, the stuff of the sacrament, and the form, the how you do it, the arrangement, the order of it. Matter and form. Here, people talk a lot about matter and form. That's what they're talking about. Just for now, the, the matter of baptism is, you might guess, water. <laughs> the matter of confirmation, which we'll talk about, is it next week? Three, two weeks from now? Okay oil, the matter of the Eucharist, no surprise, bread and wine, that becomes something other than bread and wine. The matter, I was intrigued to, to sleuth this out, the matter was, Josh, what's the matter of reconciliation? What's the stuff? It's the actual contrition, which is that, that recognition of my own lowliness, my own shortcoming, my sin, my sorrow, and being truly sorry about that, not just like, well, I guess I got to say this in the confessional but really being affected by it. That's contrition. And then the confession itself. So the words that I say and that the priest says to me, that's the stuff of the sacrament of reconciliation. That's the matter. Matrimony, not the rings, not the dress or the tux. It's the groom and the bride themselves that are the stuff of the sacrament. Holy orders, a man, either to the deacon or diaconate, to be a deacon or to the diaconate, to be a priest, nice, to the priesthood, or to be a bishop. If you hear people talk about episcopate, that's what they're talking about, to the, uh, to the bishop, to be a bishop. And then finally, the anointing of the sick, oil again. I have four of them asterisked, you'll note. Baptism, matrimony, holy orders. Sorry, oh yeah, baptism, confirmation, matrimony, and holy orders. Why are they asterisked? That indicates the fontal character of the sacrament. And obviously, that's not a word we shoot around every day, of course, fontal. It's an adjective from the noun fount. And you know what a fountain is, right? Is, or maybe a spring is a better, more familiar term for us. This thing that just keeps on giving, right? This constant, never-ending supply. So the adjective for that is fontal. It just keeps on giving, like the Energizer Bunny. Some graces, here are a few points for explanation. Some graces are received continuously through repetition. We need to go back again and again to the confessional to be reconciled to God and to the church. We need to go again and again toward the altar to receive the Eucharist, right? Um, this is, Joe, maybe the closest we come to your analogy of staccato. It's, it's a moment. And it lasts. It's not just a one and done. It's not over uh, and ended. Once it's done, it's it lasts, it has an effect, but it's something we, keep, we, we need to keep doing. Others, sacraments, are received only once, and yet continuously we receive them because of their fontal nature, like a spring that flows never-endingly. Baptism is one of these fontal sacraments. It's a constant cause along with marriage and holy orders. And uh, I had four of them, right? Baptism, confirmation. Oh, yeah, I missed it. Whoops, whoops, typo. Each and every moment, these fontal sacraments provide the source of our growth or the benchmark for our falling away. Actually, I'm a, I anchored that to baptism. 
Baptism, each and every moment, provides the source of our growth or the benchmark for our falling away. In other words, um, letter C there in your notes toward the bottom of page two. We don't just look back on our baptisms as a happy memory. That's not what the holy water fonts. Oh, I use the word again. At the entrance to the church are meant to provide. So you see Catholics walk in to mass and they dip their fingers and they make the sign of the cross. Like, oh, isn't that cute? You know, um, what's, what's going on in the mind? And maybe what's going on in the mind is less than what should be going on in that person's mind. Maybe that person's just going, yep, uh, this is what I do before I sit down, genuflect, sit down, get ready for mass. What should be going on is that recognition in that moment on a split second that from my baptism, actually, everything that's happened from my baptism till now to this point where here I am again to go forward to receive this beautiful gift of the Eucharist that God is offering me in the Son is a not just a result of something that happened way back when, but what happened way back when had a causal effect on all of the steps from then to now. And the person that I've become is, is that because of my baptism. And so here I am again, acknowledging that. Um, maybe a, a better illustration is when people tell me, I want to get rebaptized. Because I was baptized as an infant. I have no memory of it. And I've really experienced a surge of growth in my fervency toward the Lord, my passion for the faith. I'm reading the Bible every day. I'm going to Mass, whatever, whatever it is. Um, I think I should be rebaptized. And I say, no, no, no. The, the way to tell the story rightly of this resurgence that you've had, this impassioning that you are experiencing right now, is to locate it in your baptism. This is all happening because you were baptized as an infant. This is the outworking. This is the flourishing of the flower. And, and, it, and it wouldn't be this way if you weren't baptized. So don't do anything that disrespects that or undoes it or over, like varnishes over it. You can only be baptized once anyway. There's only one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, Paul says. So tell the story rightly. Understand that what happened back then, so maybe this is letter D, baptism is not what happened to me when I was a baby or a long time ago, but a present reality, the current character and condition of my soul is a direct and immediate result of my once upon a time baptism. The story that was is the story that is. So let's look at it up close. This is from Josh's handout, which again, I apologize that I don't have for you tonight. But he, he, his first column in the handout, or in, in, the, in the appendix, is the natural analogy. And the Catechism talks about these as well. We can think of baptism uh, in terms of maybe more familiar. It's a spiritual concept, but we can think of it in terms of natural categories like birth, death. Um, you know, think of dying and being reborn or being born through water. Or washing, like taking a bath or taking a shower, uh, being washed off. Um, the increase in vitality. Uh, I've started doing it. My daughters were telling me that uh, you should do a cold blast in the morning for your shower, Dad. That'll help you wake up better. And so I've, I've been trying to do this because I, whenever I can, I take the advice of my daughters. Um, but it's amazing. Uh, it, cold in the morning, warm at night. You and I have two different definitions of amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Amazingly <awful> Well. <laughs> No, I'm the point is, the, no, that's okay. I'm sure you, you're not alone in your disbelief or your incredulity. Yeah. No, but the point is, it, it ramps up the vitality. In the morning, you just <gasps> suddenly feel very much alive. And, uh, and if you weren't awake, then now you are. You know? So the washing, the, the cleaning, the invigorating. There are quite a few figures or types of baptism in the Bible long before we get to the New Testament where we use the word baptism. And I said a little bit ago that the flood was the second, and that's because creation is actually the first place we see a kind of birth from baptism. So let's get hold of this. This is really interesting. In Genesis 1, 2 through 8, water actually is the primordial matter. It's what's there first. And it's not, uh, it's not, 
there's not a clear sense in which it's, it, it's created. It's the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep. Um, or no, sorry, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, is how it reads. Um, the deep, you know, like the deep sea. Uh, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Uh, in case I forget to say it later, when we're talking about Jesus' own baptism, did you ever notice that when Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove from this place, presumably of having hovered over the waters? And so there's this nice symmetry between creation and new creation. In any case, in any case, uh, water is this primordial, primordial matter, either created or brought about first, verses 6 to 8, before the land, which isn't created until <clears throat> verses 9 to 10. And when the land is created, how is it? I should have my Bible open and read it. But um, let the waters be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear out of them. So in this sense, land and everything that's subsequently created on it, including us, is born out from water. So that's the first sort of birth through water. Life through water, or out of water. And then, of course, the flood, and I have it written out there, where Noah and his family are saved through water. Um, you know the story of the flood, right? Uh, the washing of the earth because of all the sinfulness. What's interesting is that, uh, and this is another place that's maybe has a, a kind of Protestant-Catholic distinction. Um, a lot of people besides Noah benefited from that first deliverance through water. But it's on account of Noah's righteousness that they did. So it's on account of, in the same way that it's on account of your parents, right, those of you who are baptized as infants um, without your consent, uh, it's on account of your parents' righteous decision-making that you receive this benefit of baptism in the same way that Noah's family did from his righteousness. They get saved because of him, not because of their own merit or value or righteousness. Um, so it's just another parallel. But here's Peter in the New Testament uh, arranging the logic of baptism in accordance with the flood. For Christ also suffered, this is the small print in your notes, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly didn't obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Here it is. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So he has the power as the Lord over all creation to make it such that baptism becomes this event that actually um, establishes this physical event that's much more than a removal of dirt from the body, but establishes a new spiritual reality in heaven and on earth that you have been made a child of God. Uh, your conscience has been cleaned. Your, the stain that's on you of the, the sin that so characterizes the world has washed away. Not dirt, but the stain of sin and the, and the effects of the fall. That's what's washed away. Uh, the Red Sea is an obvious one. Everybody know the story of the Exodus from Egypt, right? Israel. Sea parts they go through. Isn't it interesting how as soon as their former way of life and those that represent that way of life follow them into the sea, what happens? The sea closes in and washes that all away. There's a clean break. Baptism, the baptism of the Red Sea makes a clean break for Israel as they, as they move through. Crossing the Jordan is another figure in the scriptures by way of which the people of God receive the gift of the land promised to Abraham's descendants. I think it should say descendants, which is an image of eternal life and blessing. So when they, they carry the ark, right, up to the Jordan, and as their toes step in, the waters do the same thing that they did in the Red Sea. They part, and they pass through, and it closes in. But in this case, whereas the Israelites going through the Red Sea 
kind of they go through, and now they're in the wilderness uh, to wander and 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 uh, move about. Still a long journey ahead, kind of like life, like our our baptism. There's another aspect to baptism that shouldn't be forgotten, and so we we need the story of Israel through the Red Sea to to get at one one aspect of baptism, but we need the story of the Jordan to get at another one. That is that another thing that baptism is doing is that it's preparing us to take the land to to reach heaven really to reach uh, life with god in in that realm not just to wander through life but to reach the destination for which this wandering is is happening uh washing of naaman is another i'll let you read two kings five sometime let's talk about the woman at the well here is a place where we see the fontal character of baptism all right and I, I probably was years before I've read this story, but it's never occurred to me that what's being communicated. So I'll see if I can break it down. A woman from Samaria, John 4, came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And here's the line. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a font, a fount, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, this is John 4. It's the last gospel. In Matthew 3, we read the account of Jesus' own baptism. And maybe I should have put that story up above under letter F there. Might have been a better idea. Just so we'd have it in our minds, the story of Jesus' own baptism, because of what he achieves in his baptism, and then why he can say to this woman, um, this water that I can give you now, now that I've been baptized and achieved with the water what I did back there, this water that I give you will become for you a well that just keeps giving and giving and giving. The matter of baptism we've already talked about is water. It's poured three times over the forehead. Yeah, just form. So matter is water poured three times. Form, how it's done. Uh, Jode, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. A, a quick word about this, This um, well, two, two points. Notice how it's not the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but the name, singular. They all share one name. And and it's into, so it's, it's not like we're baptized into three and that name is, I mean, we're given it in Exodus 3 and 6. It's when God reveals himself to Moses as Yahweh, the one who sees his people, hears their cries of distress, knows their suffering, and comes down to save them and bring them up out of that land to a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, that's just a picture of Jesus right there. That's a picture of the incarnation, the death on the cross, and the, the descent into hell, the grabbing of all the souls, the resurrection, the ascension. Um, that's Exodus 3 right there. That's Jesus being portrayed. And it's the name. That's the name that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share. The name is given to Jesus in Philippians 2. You know, under, because of that name, every knee shall bow and so on. Anyway, um, that was the first thing. The other observation I wanted to make and make sure you're clear about is that, and maybe it's already clear that you don't have to be baptized in a Catholic church for your baptism to be valid because many other churches... Most Christian churches baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is, the, this is the crux issue. Most churches, Christian churches, believe what the Catholic Church believes about the personhood and the two natures of the Son as being fully divine and fully human. A couple of examples of churches which wouldn't or don't believe that and thus whose baptisms would not be recognized by the Catholic Church. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that his nature is truly, fully divine. 
even though they do baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, what they mean by the Son is not the same and is not compatible with what the Catholic Church understands the Son to be. So just because they the, the form, they use the form, it's that's correct. It's not. But it's a their defective. Their understanding of the form isn't the same. It's defective. That's correct. Yeah. Good to it's defective form. Whereas the Reformed, not defective. Methodists, not defective. Lutherans, not defective. Every, you know, Anglicans, every, you know, thumbs up. Evangelicals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because their understanding of the Trinity is the same as the Catholic understanding of the Trinity. So that's a, that's a valid baptism. So, if, yeah. That's important to lock that in, I guess, or tuck it away. Who can do it? The minister. Who's the minister or administer, administrator? Uh, in descending order of um, authority or qualification, a bishop, obviously, a priest, a deacon, or, in fact, anyone in the case of an emergency. And um, I've never heard of anybody using spit in the absence of water. Would that suffice? Like if you came upon a car accident and someone, Father, what do you think? If you came on a, on a car accident and there was no water to be had, no water bottle, no nothing? Absolutely. Especially where Jesus himself uses spit. Okay, sure. And in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, get it done. What it does, big fancy word. I hadn't actually heard that before, but uh, it's in Josh's handout. Again, I'll make it available to you. What does baptism achieve? I like it, actually. Um, what does it activate? <laughs> it remits, which is to say it pardons or cancels a person's sin. Very important. Both original, that sin that we're born into, the sinful state of the world, the stain that's on us from our birth. Uh, that it was introduced into the world from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and their disobedience in the garden. That has, that has created a, oh, what's a good analogy? Um, just like, it's like the humidity that just soaks everything on a hot summer day. That's what that sin did to the world. It just soaked it. And when we're born into the world, it's on us. We participate in it right away. And that needs to be cleansed and taken away. But we also sin personally. We do bad stuff. We think bad thoughts. We say bad words. Um, yeah, we hurt people and ourselves. So all of that, both categories of sin, baptism, whoosh, cleans the slate. It's a beautiful thing. It does more than that. It confers, it puts onto us an indelible, which is to say a permanent, and here's another not word, <laughs> unremovable mark, a character, a status on our soul, that can never be, yeah, it's, it's not like a tattoo. You can actually have tattoos removed, can't you? Technology, right? You can't remove this tattoo. It's permanent. Whereby the soul enters into the life of Christ as a beloved son or daughter of the Father. And here's the important point on this one. God will always regard you as, hey, everybody, can I just have everybody's attention? God will always regard, if you're a baptized person, God always regards you as a son or daughter. Even if you reject him, push him away, decide to go away from the faith and follow a different, God is a good God, a loving father, and he will always look upon you that way, that as, as a son or daughter. And he never gives up on, right? So um, that's what it means, that indelible mark that's on us. That's what that means, that God always regards us as one of his which makes the pain of separation the greater. It's not like um, we separate ourselves from God, and over time, God gets over it, <laughs> and we get over God, you know, and we kind of learn how to live. Agree to disagree. That, that's not how it works. The pain is, is always there for God. Finally, baptism establishes a sacramental bond between a person, you, me, um, and Christ's own body, which is the church, in a mystical way. Um, so once baptized in the Catholic Church, always a child of the Catholic Church. Um, I haven't thought really, I should ask you sometime about this. Um, how does that work since, since a baptism in a non-Catholic church is a valid baptism, but how do we understand the sacramentality of it? 
in a sense, since there is no salvation outside the Catholic Church, that is, all the graces we receive outside are still from the Catholic Church. Through the Church, yeah. And so, technically speaking, if you're baptized even outside the Catholic Church, you already have a relationship with the Catholic Church, even if you're not Catholic. And, and that's why we talk in terms of coming home, if you've, even if you've never been here. <laughs> um, not new digs, actually. Old digs. This is your home. So welcome home. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Uh, quick setup. Water in the, in the Old Testament is um, often a, a kind of a place of chaos and darkness. Uh, in Job, the beasts rise out of the water, also in Revelation. Uh, the, the sort of the anti-God. Uh, it's the one place that the lights that God makes on day four, uh, Genesis 1.14, which are given to shine or light on the earth and all the creatures. And, uh, they're not given to shine on the water, interestingly enough. I thought, I've always found that fascinating. I don't know if anybody else ever picked up on that. But when God makes the lights in creation, they're for illuminating the earth. And the sea is kind of left out to dry. Um, didn't, didn't really mean to make a pun, but, um, and then, when, and then when you read in Job, when you read, like, what happens when God uses water to wash away sinful humanity in the flood, well, now water's got all that sin in it. At, or in the exodus from Egypt, again, all the wicked, the wickedness of the Egyptians and their efforts to stymie God's plan, that's what get, gets washed away, and now that's all in the water. Um, the water, again, from Job is the place where the beasts come out, you know. It's, it's kind of a, it's a place of chaos. It's a place of aggression, maybe even evil. God needs to do something in order to make water efficacious, that is, um, equip it, not only for washing stuff away, but for actually giving life instead of death. Uh, and, and for being a place of, that, that he uses to make things ordered or orderly instead of Chaos, which is what water so much represents in the Old Testament. So here we come to the account of Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3, 1 to 17. John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Um, note the character of his baptism. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. He's talking about Jesus. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Then Jesus came to Galilee. So John's baptism that he's been doing in the previous verses um, in Matthew, it's a baptism of repentance. It's a preparatory kind of thing that John's doing. He's thinking of baptism as sort of washing things away, uh, but not as conferring life and, and this wellspring that comes. Here comes Jesus, verse 13, from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? This is all backwards. But Jesus answers him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And you're just scratching your chin at that point. Wait, I thought Jesus was already perfect. What, what does it mean for Jesus to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness? Then John consented. We'll get to that. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, so just like in the first creation, where land is, the waters are gathered to one place, land, land is born out of water. Um, Jesus was there, by the way, as the light. Let there be light. That's the second person of the Trinity. Uh, I'll explain that later if that's mystifying. But, um, and, and then here, again, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters Behold, a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We're meant to read these two accounts in conjunction. So what's going on here in Genesis? Sorry, I'll do it to you. So front end of the Bible. Creation. What's going on here? New creation. What is being created? Water. Now no longer afflicted with all the evil that's been washed into it, but made holy and able to confer life, just as it did in the first creation. Out from water comes all this life that God makes, right? Now, this is going to become, again, a source of life, not just a cleanser, but a life giver. So the character of John's baptism is repentance, but the character of Jesus is um, 
is life-giving. And this, this is, I'm kind of skipping kind of fast here because I'm running out of time, but 2.4, think of this in light of the character of Jesus' ministry. So when Jesus goes into the water, he cleanses the water and he makes water, he endows it with life. And now when we're baptized, it's not just that our sins are washed away, but something is infused in us, this life that Jesus gives it. Think about the dirtiness of the water that Jesus goes into and what happens as Jesus goes into it. In the same way that we read all the stories and accounts of Jesus touching the leper or the, the, the sick person or the, you know, when Jesus touches something that's dirty or someone that's dirty, he doesn't get dirty. They get clean because he gives life. He cleanses and, and renews and gives life. So in the same way, when Jesus goes into the water, he, he doesn't get dirty from all the dirt. He cleanses it and makes it new and life-giving. So um, I have a supplementary bit here from the catechism. I'm going to leave you to read that. I thought it would be interesting just to, here's another place where as a non-Catholic, and page five in your notes, 2.6, the curiosity of Nicodemus in John 3. Here's, anybody watch The Chosen? Yeah. Yeah, have you seen this? This bit, I mean, it's a really tender conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in that first season, right? So a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And here Nicodemus is complistered. What? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here's a place where, as a non-Catholic, I thought, and I think I represent a lot of Protestants, that think that what Jesus is saying here in this born-again language, which we non-Catholics, back then anyway, love, is you got to be born of water. That's your initial natural birth from your mother, then, you know, water, uh, from the birth canal. But then you got to be born of the Spirit, too, and that's your later conversion story. And most of us chalk that up to saying the sinner's prayer. Jesus, come into my heart, make me a new person. I confess my sins. I give my life to you, whatever the formula is. Uh, and that's what Jesus is talking about. That's not how the Catholic Church interprets this text. Being born of, of water and the Spirit is a single event. That is, the baptism in which the Spirit is hovering over the water, ready to confer, by virtue of this event, new life in you. Unless that is your pathway, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Hence the necessity of baptism. That's why, as we were saying earlier, if you come up on a car accident and you don't know, um, again, we can only baptize once, but we can do what's called a provisional baptism, where... In the event that this person has not yet been baptized, I baptize you in the name. I don't know if there's an extra special formula for that, for us lay folks. For but like just to making sure that, yeah, a conditional, a conditional or provisional baptism. So, yeah, we take Jesus at his words. Um, I'll summarize what I, I have in Romans 6. It's the story of, well, no, sorry, it's not the story. It's Paul talking about, actually, let's, let's read it real quick together. Paul admon ad admonishing the Romans, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because, you know, whenever we sin, God's grace is perfected in us. He's been developing in the first five verses. No way. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? A lot of non-Catholic traditions will interpret these verses as being figural or metaphorical. I even heard a pastor once say, well, he can't be talking about actual water baptism here because that would make us baptismal regenerationists, meaning that exactly what we've been developing here, that through baptism we're given God's life, we're regenerated, reconstituted, or Joe's favorite word, we're reified as people. Um, that came up in our book club. You can ask us later, maybe over a pint. But, uh, but that's exactly what Paul is saying. There isn't another use of the word baptizo in Greek, but other than water, washing with water, that's just what that word always means. 
So Paul is saying, literally, those of us who were washed and baptized into Christ were done so into his death. That's what sort of this idea of kind of going into the water means, just like in the flood, in the exodus from Egypt, and so on. We were buried, therefore, with him, just as he was when he went down in the water, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So here's Paul talking about the story of the Christian life is anchored right here in this sanctifying act of baptism. I just threw Acts 16 in there. We won't read it together. Uh, Almost done. Thanks for your patience. But um, as another example of a place where uh, the jailer's family, I'll summarize it quick, are all baptized after he, because of his faith. So it's a a kind of Noah part two, or redivivus. Uh, Noah's whole family benefits. They're saved through the flood because of his faith. Jailer has faith in in the New Testament, and everybody rejoiced. Everybody's baptized when they get home. Why? Not because of their own faith, their own consent, but because of his. So when non-Catholics say, you know, we get baptism, but the whole idea of baptizing your infants, where does that come from? Your, your babies. Uh, after all, they can't consent, right? Well, no, there, the, but there's precedent. Um, this idea that some can benefit from the faith of others, like Noah and his family, like uh, like the jailer and his family. So it's, it's not unprecedented. In fact, this is the way we see God acting. Another great example is the man who was lame, couldn't walk, and he wanted to see Jesus. And his friends carry a stretch. It's too crowded in the house, so his friends carry him up to the roof. They break a hole in the roof and they lower him down. And Jesus, seeing the faith of the friends on account of their faith, quite apart from the man's faith. In fact, we're never even told that he's the guy that has any faith. It's on, by virtue of the, the friend's faith that Jesus decides not only to heal the man of his infirmity, but to forgive his sins. So this dude is in the kingdom now, um, quite apart from his own volition. His friends did all this, right? So yes, it's possible to benefit um, from, from the faith of someone else in a profound way. Um, confirmation, of course, will close the gap that's introduced there. That is, there's, a, there's an importance for us to live into our baptism. And that's where we'll go with confirmation. Uh, I'm going to pause there and just kind of... Confirmation, of course, will close the gap that's introduced there. That is, there's, a, there's an importance for us to live into our baptism. And that's where we'll go with confirmation. Uh, I'm going to pause there and just kind of... Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.